An art that you see up there is by an artist named M.C. Escher. He painted this one in 1956. Yes, I was a couple years old then. It is titled Bond of Union. We've actually flipped it upside down because the world is sort of flipping gender upside down, man and woman upside down. So we flipped the piece of art upside down, but it was provocative even without that. This artist constantly changed our perspectives or challenged our perspectives of how we viewed things. So um, this is where we're going, man and woman in Christ. And why are we going there? Well, because gender is in flux. Will you agree with me? Now, it really isn't. It's just that there's a small but very vocal group that happens to own Hollywood and the media, and they make it feel like, wow, gender's really in a state of flux in the world. It isn't. Um, For all of time, people have understood there are two genders, male and female. There are varieties within those genders. Some men are more or less masculine. Some women are more or less feminine. There's, there's variety in there. But nonetheless, more or less, that's a man. More or less, that's a woman. Everybody for all of time has understood and believed that. And even in our day, it's a teeny little but vocal minority who are making us think that gender is actually changing. It's not. But gender is in flux as you would see some ways in the life that you live. For example, I wonder if any of you have been, like I have been, to a restroom in a public place, and it was a either-gender restroom. Have you been to one of those? Yes? Been a few of you? So it's like a year and a half ago, my dad and I, he's in his 90s, we got on a train, went up to New York City. He's an artist, went to the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art. You get a little piece of paper that guides you around the museum so you can find your way. And it was time for us both to find the restroom. So um, we found the nearest one, went to it, and it was men and women, one room. So I'd never been to one of those, and my dad had never been to one of those. And uh, we stood there and looked and thought, well, we, we need to. So, all right, we'll go into this thing. So we're standing in line, men and women, and gradually the line gets shorter, and then you're in the room. Then there's a lot of men and women standing in there, like waiting for a stall door to open. So you take the next one. There's a man in this one. There's a woman in that one or whatever. And uh, I was getting weirded out by the whole thing. And I said to this lady, who I did not know from Adam or Eve, standing beside me, I just like involuntarily turned and said to her, uh, this is really weird. And she said something like, yeah, tell me about it. So at least I had a comrade there. We both felt that this was a pretty strange situation. My dad and I debriefed later, he in his 90s, he thought it was a little bit strange too. It made me wonder this week, and, and I had a long section here, which I, most of which I deleted last night. I had a long section intended to convince you that there are gender issues going on in, in our world. And then I thought, silly me, I don't need to convince anybody that there's gender issues going on. But I, I will leave this one piece in. I wondered this week, so how many genders, that's not the only issue that's gender related, but how many genders are they proposing to exist on the planet? So I Googled it, you know, and I found that Wikipedia says there are 14 genders. Another list had it at 22 genders. Healthline, I've often landed on them looking for health advice and issues. Healthline says there are 64 genders. Another website said there are 78 genders. And then a BBC film that's used in public schools 
to teach your sons and daughters and their sons and daughters about gender, that film declares, leave it to the BBC, there are over a hundred genders. And by the way, you're responsible to correctly use all the gender pronouns that go with all those genders. So gender is in a bit of flux, and that at a time when uh, family, family, the nature of a family and gender within the family is in duress. My favorite living theologian, John Frame, and I rather than copy it down word for word, I just photocopied it and cut it out, and here it is. And he says, there is no more important need in our churches than for ministry to families. Now, what comes next is maybe a bit of an overstatement, but I'll forgive him. Most people in our churches have no idea what the biblical family is to be like because they have been inundated with modern anti-Christian ideology. And he says, they need to be taught about authority relationships gender-differentiated tasks, and the need to create an atmosphere that saturates children with the Word of God, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall speak these words to your children, and you do it all the time. When you, when you sit down, when you rise up, when you're walking by the way, all the time, the, the, the word of God is to be sounding in their hearts. But there's this, there's this gender battle going on. So why are we doing this? Because gender is in a state of flux, but also because God's word isn't. And be thankful for that, my brothers and sisters. God's word is not in a state of flux. What a wonderful thing it is to have a rock, the Word of God, on which you can plant your two feet and stand. And no, this isn't going to change. This doesn't vary. It's not like shifting sands. It's a solid rock. The rock is Christ, and the rock is the Word of God, and we can stand our feet on that Word, come what may in the world. So, there are temptations, let me caution you, with all this gender stuff going on, there are temptations to adjust the Bible, to tinker with the Bible, for a worse analogy, to put the Bible on the rack and to stretch it and torture it and twist it and try to make it say things that it doesn't really want to say. But if you twist it hard enough, you can get it to say those things. To get the Bible to conform to movements, to get the Bible to conform to culture and how it's changing in its sifting sands. There, there's a temptation to do that, and many of us feel it. Again, John Frame, the one I just quoted from, refers to this as what he calls movement exegesis. Now, exegesis is a big fancy word, meaning the, the principles by which we draw meaning out of the text. You can either exegete, that's drawing meaning out, or you can ice or exegete, that's reading meaning in. And we want to make sure we're doing the one, drawing out, and not doing the other, reading in. But whenever there's a movement going on, whenever there's change, whenever there's social pressure, then we feel a pressure, some of us do, there's a temptation to start massaging the text to make it fit what's going on, rather than challenge what's going on, rather than a Firm, thus saith the Lord, my feet are planted, let it all change, we don't change. 
Now, let me just say, there, there have been times in church history, let's have a little bit of cognitive humility here and recognize we might have something in the Bible wrong, and changes in our culture might be able to teach us something, so let's pay attention. Let me give you an example. There could be more, but maybe the greatest example of that in all time is theologians and Christians used to believe that the earth is at the center of the solar system, and they believed that they found that in the Word of God. That was the Ptolemaic view of the universe. And then Copernicus came along. I'm sorry, I got it wrong. Galileo came along and said, um, guess what? The sun's at the center of this whole gig. And of course, he was a member of the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church said, that does not fit with our official doctrine, so you need to take that back or else. And he said, oh, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I didn't really mean it when I said that, but he did mean it. And Christians had to say, oh, our Bible exegesis was bogus, and now scientific culture has shown us so. There are times when the world will lead us to our senses to interpret the Bible rightly, but there are many more times when the world goes astray from the Word of God and Christians chase it and follow it and wind up departing from God's Word and reading things into God's Word to fit with the movement. So Frame calls this movement exegesis. And here's what he says about it. Let me give you the quote. We should always be suspicious. That means you go, something smells rotten in there. We should always be suspicious of exegesis that seeks to bring the Bible in line with some contemporary social or political movement like the one we're talking about today. Movement exegesis must bear a heavy burden of proof. In other words, if you're going to say we've had the Bible wrong on gender all this time, you're bearing a heavy burden of proof. I mean, you better come packed with the Word of God. Uh, a heavy burden to prove since movements are typical sources of bias, and that's how that works, right? You get your heart attached to a movement, you get your heart attached to some movement in contemporary culture, and now you're committed to it, so now your tendency to see everything else in light of it, it's called confirmation bias. Everything else you see will only confirm the position you've taken. Now, and you play down the things that seem to challenge it, and you play up the things that seem to go for it, and we all do this, and we're not even aware that we're doing it, but it's very powerful in our cognitive processes. So, Frame says, when you start chasing movements and you're tempted to alter your Bible to fit movements, there's a very high probability that you're being led by biases and not by God's Word. So, a warning to those of us with gender stuff. Let's think of this another way. If the Bible is the book, and that's what the Bible means, it simply means the book. There's many books and then there's the book. And if the Bible is the book, if he is there and he is not silent, and he has revealed himself in the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, and these are altogether God's word, infallible, inerrant, inspired, uh, sufficient for life and godliness. If the Bible is God's book, and down here we have us, we fallen humans and our shifting opinions in the sands of time shifting and shifting. 
Wouldn't you expect that sometimes, wouldn't you expect that many times, God's Word is going to go against the grain of our culture and correct our culture and confront our culture? And in those times, what is needed is for somebody to say, wait a minute, thus saith the Lord. That's what Christians need to be doing in such times. Wait a minute, I take my stand with God's Word. Maybe what's needed in such times as these is, as for me and my house... I can't control anybody else, but this is my house. I'm feeding them. They're going to have to go with this. We shall serve the Lord. So these are challenging times, but here's where we stand. Way back in 1689, which wasn't that long ago in human history, but it was long ago in your lifespan. Back in 1689, a whole pile of England's best Christian leaders and theologians came together to write down a doctrinal statement. What does the Bible teach on various topics? Their whole first chapter, which is 10 paragraphs, is on the Bible, the Word of God. Here's paragraph 10. This is where we stand. He says, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined And all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits, by which they are all to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest, can be no other but the Holy Scripture, delivered by the Spirit, into which Scripture, so delivered, our faith is finally resolved. So all of that. That was the sermon introduction. All that to say, we want God's word on gender. And whatever it says about gender, we'll believe and be and do. That's how we roll here at Cornerstone. So where are we going to start the sermon? That was the introduction. Here's where we'll start the sermon. Let me give you this this sentence. We're going to spend the rest of the time today unpacking it. Men and women, I want you to know, men and women equally reflect the image of God. So we're going to see in this series, uh, this short series of messages, that in some ways men and women differ But we are more alike. We are more the same than we are different, especially in this regard. The most important thing about us is that we are creatures created by God. That's true, men and women. And the most important thing about us is to know that we are created in God's image, and that image is the same in men and in women. So the most significant thing there is to say about us is that we are the same in the most significant areas of our existence. We are men and women equally. Notice the two little asterisks on equally. Let me tell you what those mean. You ever get a text and, it, and it's, somebody's upset and it's all in capitals, which means I'm screaming. It's all in capitals. They're screaming at you. I had that word equally all in caps and I looked at it and I thought, no, that's not our voice here. We're not screaming. I don't want it to feel like we're screaming. Our voice is not shrill. Our voice is not reactionary. Our voice should be love. Anybody out there who interacts with us and we differ with them on gender, what they ought to feel from us is love. They ought to feel our love toward them because they're creatures created in the image of God equally as we are. And, and that ought to be the voice of the church. When we're prophetically differing with the culture and its decay around us, we ought to have a voice of love and they ought to feel love from us. Um, So I I reduced it down to two asterisks, which are what you use when you're texting, and you want to use bold, and you want to use all caps, but you decide that's going to look like screaming. I'll notch it down one. So that's what we've done here. Men and women equally reflect the image of God. Now, 
You say, Pastor Steve, I've known that since I was three. Why don't you tell us something we don't know? No, 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 you don't understand. Many of the most important things in life are the most simple things. They're simple but profound and far-reaching. I'm sure it is not by accident, there are no accidents in the purposes of God, it is not by accident that we begin the book finding out who he is and who and what we are. Because that's going to be foundational for, that's going to be determinative of everything else. The way you answer these first principle questions, who is God and who and what and what am I and what relationship and responsibilities do I have toward him, everything else flows from that. So it's, it's vitally important that we understand we equally, men and women, reflect the image of God. Let's read it again, Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us, yes, I do believe that's a Trinitarian us, that's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our, that's a Trinitarian our, in our image. And after our likeness, the image and the likeness of God, you What do you need to know about yourself? Here's the most important and fundamental thing you need to understand about who you are. You are that. You are mankind made in God's image and after God's likeness. You mirror him and you reflect him in the world. Let's read on in that verse. And let them have dominion. So you're a vice regent under God. You have an office. You have a position. You have responsibility. You rule. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing. This is funny. That creeps. He goes down to the creeping things. After every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In other words, all the way down to these little things. Everything. We're to exercise responsible dominion over it even as he exercises responsibility responsible dominion over the universe and over us. Verse 27, so God created man, that's a generic man for humanity. And aside, do we need gender-neutral Bibles that turn that word man into humans? No, because that's the word God chose. And it's okay to go with the words God chose. And God says, we're going to call them Man, male and female are both man, mankind. It's okay. It's not a slam against women. You women okay with that? You need to be okay with that. That's, what, that's how God put it. it. It's not that you are less in the image of God. It's not that you are less worthy or valuable or anything like that. But God chose to say, I'm going to call them mankind. By the way, that reminds me, uh, I'll probably spend more time on this in a future sermon, but you know, in, the, in the Old Testament and in throughout the Bible, God almost always identifies himself as masculine. He presents himself as masculine. But there are times when God presents himself having feminine characteristics. So the trend nowadays is to find those and make them, so that's what God is, equally with what God, no, no, no. In the Bible, the preponderance of references to God are masculine in nature and very few are feminine. We have to deal with that. 
If I'm a woman, I'm okay with that. I'm like, okay. God presents himself most of the time as masculine in that he's, he's the head. He's the one who is responsible. He's the one who leads and guides. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. See, that man and that him, those are a group. That's a group of men and women. That's men and women. That was Adam and Eve. Male and female, he created them, but they were both man and they were both him. So here's, a, here's the most fundamental thing to know about yourself. And if you want to live right, if you want your feet planted on a rock, if you want the world and life to make sense, if you want things to come into focus for you, here's what you need to know. There's a great being. He made me and everything else and he made me to bear and to reflect his image. Whether I'm male or female, we equal, equally reflect it. So I bear his image, also, also and incidentally, anyone I ever meet equally bears that image, and they are thus worthy of my love and respect, no matter how marred the image is. It's marred in them, it's marred in me. And they deserve my respect and my love, and I value them as much as I value anybody else. Doesn't matter what ethnicity, doesn't matter what country they're from, doesn't matter what language or tongue they speak. No, 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 no. We're all equal here. There's a great leveling here. We're all equally created in the image of God, male and female. He created them. So that's where you start in the Bible in knowing who you are and where you fit into things, and what's going on. There's the big picture of it all. It's like, you, you probably heard the thing, if you wanna make a rabbit stew, what's the first thing you do? Where do you start? Yeah, you go catch a rabbit. If you wanna understand who you are, what's going on, where you fit, what this is all about, what life means, where do you start? Genesis chapter one, there's a great being, he made you and everything, you are accountable to him. You, you are made for a relationship with him and you're made in his image and in his likeness. I remembered when I was working on the sermon this week, I remembered that John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Faith, one of my favorite two volumes, my, mine is a two volume set, one of my favorite reads on the planet. And he opens it with this magisterial chapter on knowing God and knowing ourselves. It's like Genesis 1 stuff. Here, here's the opening sentence of Calvin's Institutes. I'll put it up for you. He says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. Here they are. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. That's everything right there. Who's God and who am I? If you get those right, life is very good. If you get those wrong, eternity is very bad. Who am I and who is God? Nearly everything that matters, nearly everything that's sound wisdom is in those two parts. Shakespeare understood this, and trust me, I'm no Shakespearean. I can't make heads or tails of Shakespeare. I can't, I, I've tried like, to be dignified and cultured. I'm just have, I'm dignified and uncultured. I can't make my way through Shakespeare. But I've heard this part and I like it. It's from Hamlet, Act Two, Scene Two. And he, he writes, what a piece of work is a man. And I think he means generic, a human. What a piece of work. So 
I'm looking at a daughter-in-law of mine. She's sitting next to her husband. When he acts poorly sometimes, you can walk away murmuring, what a piece of work. <laughs> All right? That's Shakespeare. What a piece of work is a man. How noble, even in our fallenness, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable in action, how like an angel in apprehension, how like a God. Now listen to this. He says, the beauty of the world. So you look in the mirror and you're wondering, what am I? Who am I? There's Shakespeare's very biblical answer. You are a creature created in the image of God, which makes you the beauty of the world. The most amazing thing on the planet is you is humans, and then the paragon of animals. And then he says, I dig this, I really dig this. And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? So daughter-in-law, you can also walk away from him murmuring quintessence of dust. Piece of work. It's Shakespearean. We are creatures made in the image of God, and men and women are equally, 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 equally created in the image of God. That's important because there are differences, and we live in a day when people don't want to recognize any differences beyond like the obvious physical differences. But there are differences. One of the, one of the parts of this movement is that culture is, is a, a social construct. Sorry, that gender is a social construct. There's no real masculinity, there's no real femininity. In fact, there's a hundred different genders, and gender is just a social construct. You might be born with this kind of body or that kind of body. That doesn't determine your gender. Gender is something else, and it's socially constructed. And we've got a hundred of them now. Um, however, a little sociology here. I like to read, I like to listen, I like to pick up on some sociology. So a world-class sociologist was giving a talk, and I'm fascinated by this. He says, you know, Here's a study that was done by very capable, by very responsible people. Um, they've written this. It's peer-reviewed. It's in the journals. This is good stuff. They wanted to find out what happens when you have the most gender-neutral, accepting society on the planet. What happens to choices that men and women make about things? And their assumption was... The narrative they're working toward is men and women in such a context will just make the same choices about everything because they'll be the same. The, the differences will go away. So what they did is they identified and ranked countries in the world according to which country gives you the most totally gender-neutral experience possible where there's no economic pressure to be male or female, where there's, where there's no cultural pressure to make any certain choices, and the places that they found are Scandinavian countries. So they looked to see, all right, what is happening in those countries, let's say with job choices, and where there's absolute freedom, because you're not pressed by finances, this is different in some other countries where women are pressed by finances, they'll pursue those jobs there because they need them. But in the Scandinavian countries, almost zero women go into engineering. It's not a surprise, right? And almost zero men go into nursing. Because, as these sociologists conclude, broad brushing, but men care about things and women care about people. 
Interesting. That's what their study concludes. That's not what they wanted to find. But they found that the, the differences in choices among genders are the greatest, where the freedom to be either one is the greatest, meaning this is biology. It's not nurture, it's nature. It's what you're born with. So there are differences built into, baked into men and women. But we are more alike than we are different. We equally bear the image of God. I'll suggest, I would suggest you actually do this. Not that I do this, but I, it struck me today, I want to do this. I'll suggest you do this. When you wake up tomorrow morning, and some of you it takes an hour for consciousness to return, and some of you, you're immediately there. I'm on my way to the coffee pot right away, and, and then I'll be there soon. But um, as, soon as, as soon as consciousness returns, maybe you should have as your th first thoughts, oh, yeah there's a great being and I'm in his universe again today and I'm a creature made in his image to have a relationship with him, to walk before him in love, to know him through his divine son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what's going on in my day. And you wake up to that realization and there's your woman, in my case, usually still sleeping there. She's going to stay in bed longer than I do. That's fine. It works out that way. But you look at her and you go, and she is equally made in God's image. And she, look at this amazing creature. She also is made in God's image and walks before him and is responsible to him today. And this is how we're moving about and doing life on the planet. It's just incredible. Peter says, I think he's trying to capture some of the amazement of this. And he says, as joint heirs of the grace of life. Wow, I've inherited this thing, and she's inherited this thing. We're joint heirs. There's a leveling there. So she's way more like you than not, by the way. So is anybody of any other ethnicity, anybody of any other tongue, any other nationality. They are way more like you than not. In all the most important ways, we are the same, made in God's image. But what is that image? We're going to spend our remaining time picking apart a little bit of what it means to be made in the image of God. Okay? You ready? You staying with me? Please say aloud, yes, I need it. Are you staying with me? Ah, yeah. oh, you good people. Love you. Thank you. You're just being kind. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Theologians are pretty agreed. It means three things. Let me give them to you. You'll be shocked by the first one. You'll think I'm a heretic. You'll think I got it wrong. But no, give me a chance. And I'll try to convince you that I and they, we are right. First, to be made in the image of God, you must understand that, there you see it, the image of God is physical. You say, what? God doesn't have a body, except till Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, came and took on a body. Prior to that and forever, God and God the Father forever doesn't have a body. John 4, God is a spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So how, Heartland, is the image of God physical? Here's how. We have eyes so that we can see. And they mirror and they reflect God's sight. God can see. He sees all. He doesn't need eyeballs to see. He can see. He sees into your heart. He knows all the secrets and thoughts and intents of our hearts. Listen to Psalm 94.9. He who formed the eye, does he not see? 
So our eyes, amazing contraptions that they are, read about how they work sometime, they're amazing. Our eyes mirror or reflect God's vision, God's sight. So whenever you can see, you should be amazed at it. Wow, I can see, and this is something God is doing, even though he doesn't need eyeballs to do it. Or what about, what about arms? Does God have arms? Huh. Well, the Bible says he delivered his people, Israel, from Egypt with mighty outstretched arms. But God doesn't have arms, so what does that mean? Our arms mirror, our arms reflect that he can do things. He can exert power and force. He can make things happen, Ephesians 1.11. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And they're also called everlasting arms. Our arms are very temporary. His are everlasting. Does he have hands? Jesus in John 10 says, you don't need to worry about your salvation because I got you locked in my hand and I'm locked inside the Father's hand and no one can pluck you out of his hand. God has hands. God doesn't have hands. What does that mean? That means God can hold things like you can hold things with with your hands. And your hands simply mirror and reflect God's ability to hold things. What about Genesis 8? God smelled a sweet savor from Noah's sacrifice. God doesn't have a nose, but God can smell. What about Genesis 1-3? God spoke to them in the cool of the garden. God doesn't have lips. God doesn't have a larynx. God doesn't have vocal cords. How can God speak? Our speaking mirrors God's speaking. So everything physical about us, pretty much, images something in God. Even our This is maybe the most amazing thing about us. A man and a woman can come together and make a little person. Another image bearer, another being who will then live for eternity, either in heaven or in hell. And we can come together and make a little being. How like God. It mirrors his making beings. And in fact, he's the one who makes them. We're just the agents. We're just the tools that he uses. But God has so many, so many things, and we mirror them. In Genesis 3.8, God is walking in the cool of the garden. Does God have legs? No, but God has locomotion. And our legs mirror that. In Genesis 1, God breathed the breath of life into Adam's lungs. Does God have lungs? No, but he can breathe. He breathed the breath of life. Does he need oxygen? No. But our need of lungs and oxygen mirrors the breath of God, the life of God in our hearts. So, so many things. The image of God is physical. And you should just be amazed at yourself physically. I mean, like, look in the mirror. And even if you're 66 and it doesn't look like it used to look, you can look in the mirror and go, amazing. A creature made in the image of God. But the image of God is also official. There's an office involved in it. God holds office. He is king. He rules. He is the sovereign over all. And we under him are little kings, little vice regents. He says, have dominion over all these things and over the planet. We are kings. We are vice regents. And you feel like, I'm so small. I'm so insignificant. Nothing I'm doing really matters. Nothing in my life really matters. Well, do you have a garden? Oh yeah, I work in my garden. I dig in the earth. You are ruling 
over that part of the planet. You are a king or a queen, a vice regent with and under God. And whatever your job is, whether you work at home or you're retired or whatever it is, your job, you are ruling over a patch of God's planet and something happening on the planet. So God grants us dominion under him, but on the earth. And men and women have this equally. We equally image God physically, and we equally image God officially. And here's a third and a final way we image him, and then the message will be over, so hang in there. The image of God is, it is ethical. It is ethical. It has to do with things that are right or wrong. Here's where it's so important that we understand we are not just animals. There are people with their the evolutionary thought, well, we're just animals who further evolved, and they, they sometimes reason this way. So what's, what's the law of the jungle? Well, the big cats eat the little cats. And there's nothing ethical about that. We don't say bad cats. That's just what they do. That's how they survive. There's a lot of blood. There's a lot of eating flesh. There's a lot of gore in there. And Sometimes they mate with whomever in different ways. And so evolutionists point to that and say, so see, it's okay if we do some of those things. They're selective about it. It's okay if we are polyamorous because some animals are. It's, it's okay if we are same sex because some animals are. And we're just animals. No, we are not just animals. Thank God the law of the jungle doesn't apply. Whenever humans have got to think the law of the jungle applies, a whole lot of humans have died. But the image of God is ethical. We are not just big cats. We are humans created in God's image. And Jesus Christ says in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And in Ephesians 4, 24, and I'll put it up for you, we read... We are to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What does it mean to bear the image of God as a redeemed follower of Jesus Christ? It means you're growing in righteousness and in holiness. You're reflecting these as the character of God. Again, in Colossians 3.10, you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You're growing in knowledge of ethics, of what's right and what's wrong and how you'll behave and think and conduct yourself so this is important and we image God in these three ways let me bring this to a close thank you for being patient today so men and women equally reflect the image of God here are two things I want to say to you in closing one just simply know who you are just hang on to that just know ups and downs of life life on the planet is hard but no I'm one of those I'm one of those creatures I'm created in God's image I'm in his likeness I'm reflecting his being his character his attributes I'm put here to do so I'm one of those the most important thing you can know in your time on earth is who God is And to know that he is God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, a Trinitarian God, and that God the Son, the second person, came and died on Calvary's cross because you rebelled. 
because you ignored, because you stiff-armed, because you would not have him be Lord. And he died in your stead so that you can have everlasting life and be recreated in the image of God. Know who God is. That will lead you to Jesus Christ. And secondly, know who you and others, so you'll treat them right. Know who you and others are. Who is God? He's the creator. He made me. Who am I? Who are others? Where the creature has made it his image. This is life on the planet. This is what it's all about. Cool thing is, you don't need to go to college to know that. You don't need a PhD to know that. All you need to do is read the first chapter of the book and you'll have more understanding than Socrates and Plato and all the rest of them ever put together because you'll know who God is and you'll know who you and others are. And that's the way to live. That's the way to live on the planet. That's the way to do life. So there's our start. Men and women equally reflect the image of God. Just want you all to know, I'm not going to answer any emails all week. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for bringing us together in this room that we may open the scriptures. And I pray, we pray, that we will have come to them with our hearts opened to hear and receive your word. Teach us very deeply. Some of us came here and we don't even care today. We're just bored. We don't even want to be here. Some of us, it just doesn't even matter to us. Oh, Father, open their hearts to see the beauty the depth the importance of such simple and profound truths who you are who we are father draw young ones and draw old ones to the lord jesus we pray ones who are in this room ones who are listening from afar draw them to the Lord Jesus, that they may believe on him whom to know is life everlasting. Pray for all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.